This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Well, good morning. This is, I'm overwhelmed right now. This is an amazing event and an amazing city. Let me uh, turn on my timer so I don't keep you all too long. Pastor Mike talked about the good news, and I'm here to augment that message with, um, I won't call it bad news, but it is reality. Before I move too much further into it, I'm going to let somebody uh, much more talented than I introduce us and this session. So this is an excerpt from the I Have a Dream speech. It's just two minutes long, and I want you to, to hear this portion because it's relevant for us today. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. Dr. King used the phrase, the fierce urgency of now. And it is that phrase from whence our title for today's message comes. The title for this message is called The Fierce Urgency of Now, 
Christian complicity with racism and the imperative for urgent action. Christian complicity with racism and the imperative of urgent action. Let me unpack that title a little bit for you. So the fierce urgency of now. Dr. King gave this speech in 1963 to urge action for the cause of civil rights. In particular for African Americans, but for all Americans, that they would reap the benefits of this land of plenty equally. And here we stand in 2017, half a century hence, and that oft-quoted line that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America still stands true. And so as we look at that and we wonder why we are still here, why 50 years later we still have to talk about race and the church and integration, I wanted to probe that a little bit. I wanted to understand why this has been so hard, why this has been so difficult. And I think it boils down to the fact that Christians have been complicit with racism. Now, I use that word complicit, and it's almost too gentle. It's as if racism was happening out there, and the church just kind of went along with it. But it's more sobering than that. Christians weren't only complicit with racism, Christians advanced and defended racism. This advancement and and defense of racism predated the political entity we now know as the United States. Christian complicity with racism and the urgent imperative for action As I study these things and I see how deep this goes and how far this goes, it births in me a greater energy for action. Immediate action. Decisive action. You see, I I, I think as believers, we like to poke around the edges of racism in the church. Whether it's through a conference or a panel, not taking away anything from this whether it's for a sermon or a teaching series, but, but, but we fail to deal with the deep roots of racism in the church, both spiritually and structurally. And so today is a call to action. It's an urge to follow the imperative for immediate action. Now, this is what I hope we get out of today. My goal is simple, to demonstrate through a historical survey how Christians defended and advanced racism within the church and to urge immediate anti-racist attitudes and actions. How Christians defended and advanced racism and to urge immediate anti-racist attitudes and actions. It takes a mindset, your attitude, and it takes concrete action. Now, the path to this goal is fairly simple. I want to start out with a biblical context. And I want to talk about this doctrine called the image of God. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. I want to unpack it just briefly and relate it to our topic today. Secondly, we're going to take a brief historical survey and look at just 
a few examples of how Christians have been complicit with racism in the history of the church in the United States. And then lastly, I want to end with some practical steps. What does urgent action look like? It may not necessarily be things that you haven't heard before, but maybe after looking at this history, you'll find a renewed motivation to commit yourself to these actions. So before I get started, I've got to preface it. As my old pastor used to say, don't hear what I'm not saying. And so, number one, I'm not bashing the church, okay? This history is going to be very grim at points. And it's going to look like I'm just throwing the church under the bus. Well, I assure you, I'm not. The church is Christ's bride. As believers, we are part of it. I love the church. And as much harm as individual Christians have done to me over issues of race, I'm still in the church. And it deserves to be said as much wrong as I've done to other believers, they're still here too. So don't hear me bashing the church. Rather, as Dr. King said, there can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Number two. I'm not bashing white people either. I say this because the way America has been structured socially, politically, economically, typically it has been white people, specifically white males, who are able to make the decisions. And now that doesn't take anything away from the agency of people of color, but when it comes to making laws or having the money, we know where it has rested. And as we look at the history of the church in America, we're going to see a lot of times white people perpetuating injustices on people of color. Now, this isn't because of the amount of pigment in someone's skin, obviously. It's simply a dynamic that we have here. If we looked at other countries, the dynamic would be different, but we've got to deal honestly with the truth. And so, and so I don't want to guilt trip or shame anyone, okay? That's not the point today. However, I wouldn't be disappointed at a bit of godly grief. The Bible talks about godly grief, and godly grief leads to repentance. You see, if you want to express empathy and solidarity with marginalized people, you have to weep with those who weep. You have to feel the burden of injustice emotionally. And I think that can be healthy if it leads us to transformation. And so it's not about guilt. It's about godly grief. Number three, I am approaching this from a primarily historical perspective, just so you know. I don't know what church background you come from, but but for some folks, if you don't say Jesus every other word, you're not a Christian. This (laughs) This isn't that kind of presentation. I'm grounding it in scriptural truth, but it's primarily a historical analysis. So, 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 so don't, don't call the elders on me. Don't uh, eject me from the church. Um, I am a Christian, but, but this is, we're looking at this from a historical perspective. A couple more and we'll get into it. Number, one, number four, my talk focused mostly on black-white race relations in the U.S. Okay? So... so I'm not mentioning every ethnicity, number one, because I'm not an expert in all those dynamics. And number two, we have a time constraint. And number three, as we look at the church, um, it's this divide between black and white that has been central 
to the to the story in many ways. And then lastly, it's not all bad. There are signs of progress, and this gathering is one of those. However, I'm a historian or a budding historian, and so I confront daily the ways that we live in a fallen and sinful world. And so, and so we got to hear the bad news if we're going to appreciate the good news. All right? But there is good news. So, let's get into it. First point. That's the one. Aside from issues of salvation, I believe this biblical doctrine of the image of God is the most important for us to understand and enact in the 21st century. Why do I say that? Because the doctrine of the image of God, which we get from Genesis 1, 26 through 27, gives us a blueprint for how to treat people. It tells us how to treat people who have a different sexual orientation. It tells us how to treat people who are a different gender. It tells us how to treat people who are a different class. It tells us how to treat the differently abled. It tells us how to treat the immigrant and the refugee. And of course, it tells us how to treat one another across the color line. Now, what does it say? It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What the image of God is talking about is personhood. What makes us human beings, what separates us from the animals. It tells us that, 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 that we have God's fingerprint on us because he reached down into the clay and he molded and he shaped each one of us. At its core, the image of God tells us that we are ontologically equal. That means we all, no matter our skin color or even our religion, have intrinsic value and worth. And in terms of history, this is important to remember because it's my contention that the image of God has been systematically denigrated in people of color in the United States. But the image of God tells us that no matter how different we are from one another, we're all in his image. Not only does it tell us how to treat one another, it tells us how to treat the world. Because did you catch that part? Dominion. Verse 28 says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice that God has given us dominion or command or even better, a stewardship over the world he's created. Over the fish and the birds and every creeping thing. Notice what he did not give us dominion over was one another. Yes, we're to care for each other and serve one another, but as equals. Not as a superior type of being over an inferior type of being. We're one human race. God formed all of our in inward parts. He knitted us together in our mother's wombs. And all of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're not to exalt anyone above another person in an existential sense. Yes, we may have higher positions or ranks in an earthly sense, such as a boss over employees or a parent over a child. But those are differences based on position, not personhood. 
But we know that in Genesis 3, we rebelled against God's good order in creation. And so instead of exercising dominion simply over the fish and the birds and, and the land, we've tried to exercise dominion over one another. And this is how we get the peculiar institution, as it's euphemistically called, race-based chattel slavery. American race, racism reduced human beings to property, literally commodities or chattel. This is one important thing to keep in mind as we look at the history. What's undergirding all of this is, is an economic system that treats people as property. These people made in the image of God as property. The chattel principle, J.W.C. Pennington put it this way, is that any slave's identity or dignity might be disrupted as easily as a price could be set and a piece of paper passed from one hand to another. There's a particular uh, pernicious effect of the chattel principle on children. Listen to this quote from a book. From an early age, enslaved children learn to view their own bodies through two different lenses, one belonging to their masters, the other belonging to themselves. As Henry Clay Bruce put it about a youthful trip to the woods that ended in a narrow escape from a charging boar, he said, it was a close call, but we kept that little fun mum. If, for if Jack Perkinson, the slave owner, had learned of his narrow escape from the loss of two or three Negro boys worth five or six hundred dollars each, he would have given us a severe whipping. Whether by care or coercion, enslaved children were taught to experience their bodies twice at once, to move through the world as both child and slave, person, and property. We've got to have this chattel principle underlying the historical analysis that we're about to go through. As I study history, uh, you get literally hundreds of different anecdotes and instances uh, that, that stick out to you. One that has stuck out to me more than any other is what happened at the 1667 meeting of the Virginia Assembly. And so the first African slaves are sold in Virginia in 1619. During the 17th century, there was no strict codified slave system yet. They were, they were figuring it out. What do we do with these Africans that we're treating as property? And they're crafting laws around it. But there are also missionaries at this time who, who want to evangelize the, the, the native inhabitants and the Africans. But they were getting pushback from the slave owners. Why? Because when the missionaries would preach the gospel to these slaves, the slaves would get these crazy ideas about liberty. They, they, they would get these wild fantasies about being equal to their master. And then they would sue for freedom. So the slave owners were like, missionaries, you guys go away because when you preach that stuff, we don't have good slaves anymore. Well, this is still a very religious time. And so the Virginia Assembly, which was made up of white male Anglicans, and you had to be in the church to be in the assembly, they said, look, we'll work this out for you guys. 
we'll make a law that says this. Whereas some doubts have arisen whether children that are slaves by birth and by the charity and piety of their owners, by the charity and piety of their owners, made partakers of the blessed sacrament of baptism, there, there, there's been some question whether, whether baptism, by virtue of their baptism, be made free. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. That diverse masters, freed from this doubt, may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity by permitting children through slaves or those of greater growth, if capable, to be admitted to the sacrament. Do, do you hear what it's saying? It's saying slave owners, be cool. We have just passed a law that says if by your, 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 your grand grace you should share the gospel with your slaves and they accept it and they get baptized, don't worry about your property. We're not going to free them. Why? Because the gospel talks about spiritual issues, not social. And that's going to be a recurring theme. Now, that's just one example. That's just the law, right? This one got me too. So even at the time of baptism, white Christians wanted to ensure that slaves didn't get any strange ideas about liberation or emancipation or their physical chains. And so missionary Francis Lejaw and others like him, when they came to baptize slaves, they made them recite the following baptismal vows. You declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe to your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul and to partake of the grace and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. Many of you remember your baptism and you remember the vows you took. And what a beautiful entrance into the household of God that was. This was the entrance the slaves got. That you had to affirm in your baptismal vows that you weren't just getting baptized so that you could press for your freedom. That you were only getting baptized to save your eternal soul, but to do nothing about your life on this side of heaven. Christian complicity with racism. Now, one of the things that has already come up, and again, this is, this is taking place a hundred years before the Declaration of Independence, a hundred years before the Constitution of the United States. This is before the political entity of the U.S. And this is how far back it goes with Christianity and racism. And one of the things that continually comes up throughout the history of race and the church is the question of whether... Racism, segregation, slavery, any of those issues, whether those are properly debated in the church or whether those are civil issues. In other words, are those spiritual and moral issues that Christians need to tackle within the body or are they purely legal issues that need to be hashed out in Congress and the courts? Well, early on in the 1700s, 
Uh, the Baptists, who, by the way, are just representative. Methodists did this. Presbyterians did this. They decided that no, slavery is not a church issue. Mind you, they're paying attention to who you slept with, how much you drink, how often you're going to church, but no, 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 not slavery. This is what they said. A committee, the Baptist General Committee was debating this issue, and they said in 1793, they voted, and by a majority, after considering it a while, that the subject be dismissed from this committee, meaning dismissed from the church body, as believing it belongs to the legislative body. In other words, what was happening there is they had too many rich slave owners in the congregation who were mad that they were taking up the morality of slavery. And so what the Baptist General Committee did was to say, this isn't a church issue. It's a government issue. Leave that outside the walls of the church. And every individual congregation or every individual is up to his or her own conscience regarding the issue of slavery. Is slavery or racism in general a spiritual issue or a civil issue? One of the most devastating ways that Christians have been complicit with racism is to wrap racism in the word of God. And so they would take particular passages and they would use those passages from Scripture to reinforce the idea of racial inferiority or segregation. For example, Genesis 9. They call it the curse of Ham, even though it was Canaan who was cursed. You remember the story, right? Moses, or, uh, Noah gets drunk from his own vineyard, falls asleep, passes out naked. His son Ham sees his nakedness. He goes and tells his brothers Shem and Japheth, they, being righteous, take a blanket, they hold it between themselves, and they walk backward, and they cover their father just not to see his nakedness. When Noah wakes up, he pronounces this curse. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, pro-slavery and pro-racist Christians used this curse to say, well, Ham means black and and and." People in Africa are black, and then Canaan was cursed to be a slave to his brothers. And of course, white people are descended from Japheth. I don't know how you get there, but this is what they said. White people are descended from Japheth, and so therefore, black Africans are cursed by God to be slaves of white people. And it's in the Bible. Now, you got to get this, because when we look back from our present day and see these debates, we say it's outrageous. But for them, this was a question of biblical orthodoxy. Therefore, to say that slavery was outlawed or segregation was wrong was to actually impugn the word of God. And that's what they were defending as much as slavery and racism was, no, we are orthodox Christians. We believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant word of God. And if you start taking away this stuff about slavery, which is in Genesis 9, then you are taking away from the authority of the word of God. That's what was at stake. That's why it's not as easy just to say, look how badly you're treating people. No, for them, it was a matter of theological and biblical fidelity. Now, that's just one passage. Here's one of my favorites. Um, This came out in 1954 after the Brown v. Board uh, decision to integrate schools. And, and, And 
a guy wrote A Christian View of Segregation was the title. Here's what he wrote. This is about Leviticus 19.19. He says, according to the law delivered to Moses, the crossbreeding of diverse strains of cattle, the planting of mixed seeds, and the mixing of wool and linen in a garment were forbidden. We are not told the reasons for this curious law, but it seems impossible to escape the conclusion that if such intermixture of diverse elements in the lower orders of animal and plant life were unseemly and contrary to the divine purpose, the same principle would apply with even greater force with respect to human relations. Do you see what he did there? He said since, since in Leviticus... God didn't want cattle interbreeding and he didn't want wool and linen mixing. Therefore, he must not want human beings like black and white mixing either. That would be like mixing different cloths together in the Old Testament. And then another one boggles the mind nowadays. But Acts 17.26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. If you know the context of that verse, the next verse says so that they might reach out and find God, though he's not far from each one of us. It's a, it's, it's a passage about salvation. But racists and segregationists used it to say, look, God determined our allotted boundaries. And we're not supposed to cross them. They used this verse to reinforce segregation from the Bible. Because if God determined our boundaries, then who are we to break those up? Not talking anything about the salvific implications of it, that, that the purpose was for them to find God, but they used this passage to say that black people and white people shouldn't be mixing up. Racism wrapped in the word of God. Now, a lot of us know, we're, we're, we're moving forward here in history. A lot of us know the letter, to the, a Birmingham, letter from a Birmingham jail that Dr. King wrote. Um, and it's required reading, by the way, if you haven't read it in its entirety. It is masterful. But the brilliance of the piece stands out even more when you read the letter from the clergy to Dr. King. In other words, the letter from a Birmingham jail, it was responding to clergy members who had written Dr. King. And I just want to read you a couple quick things from that letter to Dr. King. This is what they're saying. We are not confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens, meaning in Birmingham, directed and led in part by outsiders. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized. But we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. They go on to say, we further strongly urge our own Negro community to withdraw support from these demonstrations and to unite locally in working peacefully for a better Birmingham. When rights are consistently denied, a cause should be pressured in the courts, and in negotiations among local leaders and not in the streets. We appeal to both our white and Negro citizenry to observe the principles of law and order and common sense. This is great language, right? It, just, it, sounds, so, it sounds so reasonable. 
what these clergy members are telling Dr. King and these outside agitators is that you don't need to be marching in the streets and provoking this this public confrontation and getting people arrested. The proper way to do this, say those who, who, who are in the position of the oppressor to the oppressed, the proper way to fight for justice is through the courts and through law and order and through patiently negotiating. This is what they're telling Dr. King as he sits in a jail for marching for voting rights and civil rights for African Americans. And that's what makes his response so brilliant. Now, I know this is about Christian complicity with racism. Let me briefly pause and, and, and read a little bit of that letter to show how folks push back against Christian complicity with racism. Dr. King said in his letter, you deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham? I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with, grapple with the underlying causes. It's unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it's even more unfortunate that the city's white power stru structure left the Negro community with no alternative. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts, he says to these men who are urging action through the courts. And then he says, nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to dramatize the issue so that it can no longer be ignored. Pastor Mike also talked about his daughters perhaps marrying outside of their race. We can't underestimate the abject terror, particularly of, of white men, that black men would marry white women. And, and they start having kids together. And it's a really interesting case they made. They said they valued diversity. And it's because they valued the distinct diversity of each people group, meaning races, that they didn't think it was a good idea for people to intermarry because you would dilute the distinction of each race. Now, what they were really saying was a sort of biological scientific racism that said white people were genetically superior to black people and what they didn't want to happen was for intermarriage to dumb down the race. If you recognize these folks, that's uh, Richard and Mildred Loving. There was a court case decided in 1967 that finally took the law off the books that said black and white people couldn't marry. It was a law. And those are their children, their beautiful children. Here's what one white pastor said about intermarriage. He said, is it desirable the social relations leading normally to intermarriage and ultimate racial amalgamation should be encouraged and approved? Or is it more desirable in the interests of all parties and society as a whole that racial intermarriage should be discouraged or prohibited and that each race should be enabled to preserve its own racial integrity? 
He goes on to say it would represent a colossal blunder and a betrayal of unborn generations and a monstrous crime against civilization. I can tell you from personal experience, this fear of interracial dating and interracial marriage is still with us today. Maybe people give it a different reason. Or maybe they don't state the real reason. But there is still this fear of people across races coming together. Now, I want to I talk about more of the, the present. Because it could be easy for us to look at 1667 or 1967 and say, well, that was the past. We're over all that now. Can't we just stop talking about this? Let me say a couple of things. Number one, no, we're not over it. And I can tell you because weekly, sometimes multiple times a week, I am in communication mostly with young African Americans who are hurting. They are in incredible pain because they want to maintain fellowship, Christian fellowship across racial lines, but particularly if they are in predominantly white institutions, that could be a college, that could be a seminary, that could be a church, that could be a denomination. If they're in a predominantly white institution, they don't feel heard. They feel always on the defensive, always having to explain themselves, never feeling like there is solidarity among the majority. Let me give you some actual examples. Text messages I've received, messages on Facebook. Someone sent me this. Honestly, really turned off by our church, wrestling with not expecting the church to meet my personal needs, but also wrestling with what role does the church play in everything currently. I found us to be largely mum on it and slow to equip people on how to deal with it, especially a church that's supposed to care about black people. Another person said, it's like if my white friends are going through some trials and tribulation, I heard as well, but it seems that but it seems as if that empathy is one-sided in a lot of cases. And another person says, there are some issues and concerns we have around culture here, especially for African Americans. We want to advocate for changes that might serve to help African Americans and other minorities feel more welcome and more loved. These are actual human beings that are confronting a culture that is unresponsive. And these kinds of messages come more frequently when a cell phone video comes out of a questionable encounter with law enforcement that leads to a death. Folks want to hear from the pulpit or from leaders in their church that the gospel has something to say about the pain that's happening right now. I know... A lot of people, I don't know what your political leanings are. It doesn't matter. What does matter is a lot of people, particularly minorities, are in a state of fear and anxiety right now. They've heard language like this before. And it didn't mean good things for people who look like them. And you may or may not be convinced of that. I don't know. What I do know is that people are hurting and in pain. 
And I do know that the gospel speaks to that. And if we can't see the human person in pain behind our political leanings, then we've lost something of the gospel. So yes, these things are still relevant. Our churches are still divided by faith. And we're still confronting a culture that A, has not dealt adequately with the truth of the past like we've shared this morning. And is still from the perspective of the minority, not as responsive as we need to be. So, what do we do about that? I love this quote. Why why are we like this? One consequence of thoroughgoing evangelical individualism is a tendency to be ahistorical, meaning not historical to not grasp fully how history has an influence on the present. And this. For most white evangelicals, however, sin is limited to individuals. Thus, if race problems, poor relationships result from sin, then race problems must largely be individually based. In other words, if racism is an individual issue, it's an individual problem, then the way to solve that problem is through individual relationships. Hey, let's go grab a cup of coffee. Hey, come on over. Let's have dinner. Now, those things are good. They're, sufficient. They're, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. That's all this is saying. Absent from their accounts is the idea that poor relationships might be shaped by social structures, such as laws, the ways institutions operate, or forms of segregation. And those, that's the urgent action I want to get at. Beyond just being nice to people, what do we do? And, 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 and what I'm about to give you, are, are, it's sort of my wish list, right? You've, you've got your Amazon wish list. My wish list is probably 200 items long. I'm not going to get 2% of those things. But it's on my wish list because I'd like to have it if I could. That's what this is about to be. And so it's going to sound kind of crazy, kind of wild. I don't know if you're going to do it. I don't know if you're called to do it. I do think some of these things are a calling, but I want us to at least consider it. Why? Because of everything I just showed you. This is the point, brothers and sisters. If Christians were so intentional about keeping the races apart, then we need to be just as intentional, if not more so, to bring us back together. We can't poke around at it. We're, we're, we're playing around with, with, with issues of race like, like, like they're elective, they're required curriculum. You can't choose to turn it on and off based on convenience. Your calling is rarely comfortable. All right. I'm just, you know. Listen. I'm telling you, this is my wish list. A lot of us want to focus on Sunday morning as the point of integration. Like that hour, hour and a half, two hours, three hours if you're Baptist. Like those couple of hours on Sunday morning, if they're integrated, would work everything out. We can't be, expect to be integrated on Sunday if we're not integrated Monday through Saturday. And so I think the segregation that we see in the church on Sunday is the fruit, but not the root. 
The root happens Monday through Saturday, and then we see the fruit on Sunday as far as our racial integration or separation. And so what does that mean? It means where do you live? Some of you might be called to move to an area with more diversity. Because, let's face it, if you are in a homogenous environment, how are you going to interact with people who are different? I mean, whose, whose door are you going to knock on to borrow a cup of sugar? They're going to look just like you. But it says move or not. <laughs> because, see, sometimes the neighborhood changes. Right? Uh, I read something that said integration is that period between when the first black family moves in and the last white family moves out. And so are you called to stay when others are leaving? Because the neighborhood's changing. Now you got blue collar and poor folks. Now you got crime. Now you got loud music. Now you got people who don't look different, who don't look like you. Now you got people speaking a different language than you. Are you called to stay? Or are you called to move into an area, a different area? I'm putting these things forward because we know the history, right? It wasn't a, a, a sort of light and fluffy would go along with the racism in the culture. It was in the church advancing these things. And if so, if, if we as the church are going to see integration, then we need to take bolder steps. That's what I'm saying. Now, it's not only where you live, because let's be honest, we live in like a suburban type of culture. Sometimes we never even talk to our neighbors, no matter how different or similar they are. But I tell you what to get you. Your school. I don't know if you're in school or you got kids in school or you're thinking about school or whatever. But you may be called to switch schools to go to a more diverse environment. Why? Because then you don't have the option. You got to interact with classmates and teachers and administration and people who are different. You got to talk to your kids, uh, 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 the, the, the parents of the other kids in your child's classroom. You, you've got to make friends. And so you could be called to switch schools. I'm just saying. This is a wish list, right? This is a calling. I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and do this, but if you want to be, be radically integrationist, then you're actually going to have to disrupt some of the natural patterns in your life. As intentional as we were to keep races segregated, we got to be intentional about getting races integrated. And so you might be switching schools, or you might stay. The school environment could be changing, and you could be called to be salt and light. By the way, this is just bonus, and it might get me in trouble, but a lot of people say, my kids aren't missionaries. It's not my job to put them in that environment. I completely get it. And when it's your child and it's home with you, that decision gets a lot more real. At the same time, we actually do send missionaries and their families overseas. Whoever said, I don't, I, don't, I don't recall the verse that said, your calling might not include your family. Or might not put them in the same kind of riches as it puts you. Especially for the sake of the gospel. I could be wrong. That's just Jamar ad-libbing. But... 
Next. <laughs> Here's a wacky idea. Somebody else gave it to me, but it stuck with me like a pebble in my shoe. I don't know if this is even a good idea, but I put it out there. Is it time to start a new Christian seminary that is led by minorities and has diversity in its DNA? The reason I say that is not because any currently minority-led seminaries are in any way deficient. I wish there were more. Nor is it to say that existing seminaries that are not minority-led are somehow wrong. What I am saying is that just like we plant churches with diversity in their DNA, and sometimes it's easier to start from scratch when you know that's the trajectory, could it be that we need to start a seminary, an institution to train future men and women for leadership in the church that has that idea from the ground up? A lot of times it's hard to change an established institution. And so sometimes it may be able to get support. You may be able to get support from those institutions to start something new. Something where you have uh, uh, you're reading th theologians of color. Something where you're learning from professors of color. Something where they're not afraid to talk about so-called social issues. In a biblical framework. I don't know. It would take an enormous amount of financial resources, and it would take a critical mass of scholars of color, which it wouldn't only be that, it would be open to anyone, but, but, but you would be intentional about getting scholars of color in leadership. And then what you would do is produce generations and generations of leaders in the church who understand this imperative for urgent action. I don't know. It's my, it's my, it's my ecclesiastical wish list. We need a six-figure or more endowment for students to go to college, to go to seminary, to go to graduate school. We need a sum large enough that you can give out scholarships based on the interest accrued and not touch the principal. So that for generations and in perpetuity, you have support, financial support, for people of color wanting to get educated and trained. Because a lot of what I see right now are generous individuals who will fund one or two people. Or maybe there is a scholarship fund, but it's a small pot and everybody gets a little bit. If there's one church, the U.S. church, is there, if there's one thing the U.S. church has, it's money. Let's use it wisely and well for the cause of racial equality. This is the last one I'll go into before I close. But take initiative to study your own history. I mean your church. It's the worst thing as a racial minority to attend an institution and, and, and through a blog post or a book realize how deep the racism goes. That the building was named after a slave owner. That the theology comes from a staunch segregationist that didn't want people who look like you in that school to begin with. It's a terrible thing to stumble upon that truth. Better it is for us as members of the body to understand total depravity and to say that all of our heroes were flawed, 
to bring those to light and take initiative and be proactive about that and say, look, this is what happened. And it's not about bashing the dead. It's not about renaming every building, but I wouldn't take that off the table. But it's about owning our past, repudiating the sin, and moving forward to reconciliation. Now, I've got other suggestions that we'll, we'll put in the follow-up. Let me close with this. Why haven't we made more progress in terms of race in America? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but I think fundamentally it boils down to one word. That word is fear. What we all do, black or white, whatever, is we get this idea that racial reconciliation is is good. And then we walk right up to the edge of urgent action and we look over and say, nope, that's too deep. That's too far. You know what? They're going to start calling me names. I'm going to lose donors. I'm going to lose church members. I might lose my pulpit. I'm going to lose friends. My family members are going to dislike me. Somebody's going to unfriend me on Facebook. We get right up to the precipice of, of, of radical, urgent action for reconciliation, and we shrink back because of fear. Brothers and sisters, that's all of us. But the Lord has a word for us, too. I love the verse in the first chapter of Joshua. It says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord is your God. For the Lord, your God is with you wherever you go. More than strategy, what we need is strength. I can't tell you what to do in your context. I threw out some ideas, but you've got to figure that out for yourself. But what we need is what the Lord said to Joshua. We need strength and courage. We need strength and courage to endure the name calling. We need strength and courage to withstand the sorrow of broken relationships. We need strength and courage to let go of our comforts and pursue our calling. We need strength and courage to experience the same afflictions that the marginalized and the oppressed do. We need strength and courage to unlearn faulty ideas about race. We need strength and courage to have the humility to learn from and submit to the leadership of people who don't look like us. We need strength and courage to run this race not as a sprint, but as a marathon. But see, there's good news today. You see, when God called Joshua to lead the Israelites, he wasn't calling him to go in and achieve that which was uncertain. He was calling him to go and claim that which was promised. All the way back in Genesis, it said, and I will give you, he's talking to Abraham, and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And don't you see the promise in Genesis is the same as the promise in Joshua. I will be your God. I will be with you. And don't you see how that promise was perfectly fulfilled in the New Testament when God sent his son, whose name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so as we look at racial reconciliation, we get up right up to that precipice and we want to shrink back in fear. We remember that God is with us and he has given us not a spirit of fear, but a power of love, of self-control. And he's calling you to that precipice and he said, don't be afraid. I'm with you. So do whatever you got to do for the sake of truth, for the sake of reconciliation, for the sake of your brother or sister who's hurting.
That's what we need, church. We don't need a, 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 a five-year strategy or plan. I'm a fan of those. Those are good. But what we need more than anything, and most urgently, is strength and courage that comes from knowing God is with us. And so, brothers and sisters, yes, Christians have been complicit with racism. And there is the imperative for immediate action. But you can do it with the strength and the courage of him who is in you, who's greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at the hard truths. Lord, we live in a fallen world and we are depraved. We are sinful through and through, but God. But you came through for us in your son, Jesus Christ, who by faith in him, we can do things we never thought were possible. And Lord, we look at this one Charleston conference and we thank you for bringing people together who are so different. And it is an assembly, Lord, that only you could generate by your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would take those assembled here, that you would give them a spirit of strength and courage to go out boldly and work for reconciliation, whatever that looks like in their own sphere, in their own context. Lord, we pray for healing, and we pray that it begins in the church, that we might be a city on a hill for the world to see and to know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.